Hey, welcome back to Discourse from the Big Chair. This is, of course, the most popular Tears for Fears podcast on the entire internet. And also, as far as I know, it might be the only Tears for Fears podcast on the entire internet. But that's neither here nor there. Anyways, if you are a brand new listener, what are you doing listening to this episode? There's plenty of other episodes you should probably start with. This is a podcast where Stephen Coleman, Tears for Fears superfan, this guy right here. Say hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. How you doing? Introduced me, Steve Cuff, Tears for Fears doubter, who mocked Steve incessantly for probably the better part of a year for liking Tears for Fears. And Steve slowly but surely introduced me to each one of their albums. And we went through each record one by one. And then we went to a live show. And spoiler alert, I'm now a big Tears for Fears fan. So you're probably asking yourself, Steve, you and the other Steve, you went through all the albums. You went to the live show. Why now? Why come back almost a year later for another episode of this podcast? And let me tell you something. It's not just going to be one episode. We have multiple episodes planned for you people. And the reason is we got such a wonderful response from the Tears for Fears fans that we decided, hey, you know what? We have some more ground that we need to cover. Some people asked us to look specifically at some different songs, some different albums, some things that maybe we didn't dig deep enough into. And we have another reason that I'm going to discuss later about why we decided to come back. So with that, like I said, I got Steve Coleman with me. Steve, what's going on, man? Not much. I do want to apologize up front that if I'm laughing and it sounds like I've smoked 20 cartons of cigarettes, I'm actually just getting over a cold. So I apologize if any of my wheezing offends any listeners out there. I was hoping that you actually just smoked, you know, 20 cartons of cigarettes. That'd be pretty cool. It might make me feel a little bit better. (laughs) (laughs) You Um, never know. But hey, great to be back. Season two. Season two. Is it season two? Let's call it season two. Let's call it season two. That works for me. All right, well, this episode specifically, we had a lot of requests from fans to kind of talk about uh, maybe some of the really deep cuts that we didn't get into, specifically some of the stuff that Kurt Smith and Roland Orzabal worked on outside of Tears for Fears, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. But hey, here's the big surprise. We're going to Grand Rapids in a couple of weeks. What's going on with that, man? We're going Grand Rapids to see Tears for Fears on September 26th and at it's the Meyer not, Gardens. It's not just so I can get drunk at Founders Brewery, okay? Don't believe the rumors. It's <laughs> not true, even though that'll probably happen. But, I mean, that's that's not the entire reason for our journey. But, yeah, we're going to Meyer Gardens, and it's kind of a weird scenario because we actually thought that we were going to be seeing Tears for Fears months ago, and then that didn't happen. Yeah, they postponed due to a family illness, and we were going to bring the podcast back at that point, too, but we thought that uh, we would maybe just hold out and see if they'd reschedule the show, and yep. they did, they which did. is great. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, I mean, maybe they heard that, you know, season two was in the works, and they figured, <laughs> you know, we should probably reschedule this Meyer Garden show. It's going to be interesting because, <clears throat> you know, we saw these guys in Detroit, actually, uh, Detroit adjacent, outside of Detroit, we saw them in Sterling Heights, Michigan, but the metro Detroit area last time and and that's kind of a big metropolitan area whereas Grand Rapids much smaller city much smaller venue which I'm excited about cuz I think it's going to be much more intimate mm-hmm. uh but I'm interested to see what kind of crowd these guys are going to draw you know are are they going to bring in people from Indiana people from Chicago I know even at the Detroit show we were surrounded by people from Ohio Indiana uh Illinois all over the place 
So I, I think I think it's going to be another case where we're going to see people coming from pretty far away. It is sort of a really random spot to be just showing up. Um, whenever they tour, it's never a very normal tour itinerary. Mm-hmm. Um, at least it hasn't been since like 2004. Um, I mean, even this time they're going to like Boise, Idaho, and I think like Windsor, Ontario, just sort of randomly. Um, huh. So yeah, Grand Rapids was random enough to get a shot this time. And Damn. good for them. I think it's going to be the first Tears for Fear show ever in that town. Man, you know, if we were super fans, we uh, we could have traveled from Grand Rapids to Detroit and stayed in Detroit and gone over to Windsor for the uh, the next show. Man, we, yeah, we fucked true. up. Well, except I don't think either one of us has a passport, so that would yeah, probably hamper things yeah. a bit. I am missing my passport It's currently. not like the golden days when we could just waltz across the border like it was nothing. Yeah. Sad. Wow. Oh, well. All right, Steve. So... What what are we going to start with here? I, I listened to a lot of stuff <laughs> this week, and it was interesting to me because I, I don't even know. I think only one song out of all the songs you gave me was actually like a Tears for Fears song. <laughs> Nothing else was. Where, where do you want to make our, our jumping off point here? Well, I think uh, a lot of people will maybe appreciate this or maybe just won't care at all but i think we're going to start with uh, 1986 with a little pro- side project called man crab yeah let's and talk about man crab. fish for life <laughs> okay i'll tell you what i'm going to try and queue up man crab uh <laughs> which that's a fun google image search if anybody is listening at home and wants to try that out uh why don't you tell the audience if, if anybody out there isn't familiar with man crab what in god's name is man crab man crab is actually Ian Stanley, formerly of Tears for Fears, a peripheral member, but a very important figure in the early days, as many will well know. For some novices, he's the guy who looks like Dave Coulier in the Head Over Heels music video. Uh, and he and Roland Orzabal, I believe, were commissioned by their record label to write and perform a song for The Karate Kid 2. And I think maybe the label or maybe even the producers were hoping they were going to get a Tears for Fears song, and they said, well... Let's call ourselves Man Crab and uh, hire a session guy to sing the song. And uh, allegedly, the guy who sings the song is one of the back or one of the guys who dances in a tuxedo in a gas station in the "Everybody Wants to Rule the World" music video. Wow! Yeah, this um, is this is kind of an interesting one. Well, I mean, just the whole scenario of how it got put together. Because can you imagine in the year of our Lord twenty sixteen, <laughs> this sort of scenario being concocted? You know, obviously, there's like pop collaborations for movie soundtracks all the time. That's that's not necessarily something that's unique here. But like just Josie the, Wales and uh, or what's the guy's name from Saliva? <laughs> oh God! And the guy from Nickelback. <laughs> sure, the uh, the ultimate combo. Uh, but this is interesting because I think people during this era, especially, used to think of Tears for Fears as kind of an entity and not like Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. Like obviously, the band is those two guys, but I don't know if like there was name recognition just for those two guys, and the fact that Roland Orzabal collaborated with someone who was really a complete unknown at this point, and that's not to disparage his talents because the guy is a he's a major talent, and then also not even go by either one of their names, but just come up with something a little bit ridiculous like Man Crab. Which do you even know what's the origin of that name? Is that just something they thought sounded good? I have no earthly idea. 
Um, wow. I maybe it just sounded good. Um, maybe it's even in relation to the fact that the song is called "Fish for Life," so they've needed some sort of aqua life to accentuate the band's <laughs> <Aquatic>. name. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope you can handle more F titles. It's possible. There we go. There we go. Yeah, I got some hot jams. So I'm gonna play a little bit of this right now. I'm gonna try and get the. Uh, Hold on, I gotta adjust the levels by reaching over myself. So, this one is, it's kind of interesting just how difficult it is to find. Yep. Which, again, is a weird thing to say in 2016, but just to give you an idea, the video that exists of this on YouTube, it's, it's... Clearly, like, taped off of MTV 120 Minutes in, like, 1989 or whatever. And it's um, it's a song I knew about for a really long time. You know, yeah. Ever since I was a young middle schooler. And those were sort of the internet in its infancy days. And I just could not track it down. When Napster finally came around, I couldn't find it there. Mm-hmm. And the way I found it was actually... Probably less than 10 years ago, I was in college and I was shopping at a record store and I found this random uh, 12-inch. It didn't have a picture sleeve or anything. It just was in this black sleeve. Oh, Jesus. And it was a promo for Fish for Life. And it was an extended dance remix and the back had the single remix and an instrumental mix. And I, wow. I remember having to wait almost like six months before I could listen to it because I had to go back home where my turntable was to finally hear it for the first time. Wow. It's quite uh, a journey <laughs> with not a big payoff. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and even on YouTube here, so you, you have this taped off of MTV via a VHS music video that someone just randomly uploaded to YouTube. And it doesn't have a ton of views. It's got like less than 20,000 views. And the big kicker is one of the first comments that you see is a woman and she's basically like shouting out the uh, the African-American gentleman here who's doing the singing and the dancing and is kind of the star <laughs> of the video. And she's just like, hey, it's me, Kiki from high school. So proud of you that you made it. <laughs> oh, wow. I didn't. I've never seen that before. Yeah. Hold, let me bring up the comment. It's it's really weird. Hold on. I don't really know if you really did much after this, poor guy. <laughs> yeah, okay, so it says, Hey, Eddie, I still love your video. It's been so long. Remember you always and our uh, gang at Luther Burbank High School. Love you. Kiki. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, isn't that wild? So it's just, I don't know, there, there's a, a strange level of like lo-fi intimacy to the existence of this song and this and this music video and the way that it was... Not necessarily forgotten, but just sort of like brushed aside. Well, and I think like the highest profile thing I remember happening to the song was somewhat recently. Uh, Dev mm-hmm. Hines from Blood Orange, mm-hmm. who, uh, who for anybody listening out there, I think released one of the best albums of 2016 so far. Uh, he shared this video on his Facebook page. What? Why? Just like as like a ringing endorsement, like this song is great. And at the time, he was like sharing a few other Tears for Fears related things. But mm-hmm. that's like a really weird thing for somebody, even for a normal like pedestrian Tears for Fears fan. There's not a lot of talk about this song, and there's not a lot of sharing it, and there's not like this like group of people that think it's so great that it's worth revisiting time and time again. Yeah, Although, this is uh, this is the definition of a deep cut. 
Yeah. <laughs> with like and with first draft lyrics. I feel like it just it sounds almost like a very like just a slightly amped up B side mm-hmm. of from Tears for Fears in that era. Yeah. And and you can definitely you can tell that it, it comes from that Tears for Fears lineage, but I, I think you're right where it has it's it's a lot looser. Tears for Fears, especially around the time that this song came out, you're you're worse you're used to this like grandiose production and everything feels very planned out and fine tuned and just perfect. Whereas this song, it's so loose compared to everything else that they were doing. And, you know, it makes me wonder if they just cut most of this thing in an afternoon. And in a way, it, it kind of adds to the song's charm. And it's, it's, a different, it's a different flavor of Tears for Fears. Is this like a, a top-tier song where I'm like, oh my god, you, you gotta listen to Man Crab. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm not beating down the door for a, a Man Crab <laughs> album anytime soon. But at the same time, this is this is one of the big surprises out of everything that you showed me. I was like, "Oh wow, I honestly expected this to be garbage." And it's it's a cool little song. It's a fun pop song. Yeah, it's grown on me considerably in the last few years too. Uh, I do wish I had it on some sort of like formal format other than like that vinyl copy that I have. Yeah, I don't want to drag it out of my record collection and play it and turn it over after four and a half minutes. Well, hey, maybe I'll uh, I'll buy a, a copy of the Karate Kid Two soundtrack on cassette for your birthday. Oh, there you go! I didn't even realize that that was an option. Hey, there you go, man. That's that's what See, I do for you. That's what friendship's look, all about. This guy's so nice to me. Everybody, you have no idea how how lucky <laughs> we we are to be friends. So yeah, that that was uh, that was interesting, and it was it was kind of my first dive into this super super deep stuff. And then Steve Coleman. Mm-hmm. You made me a Tears for Fears Super Duper Deep Cuts Spotify pay- playlist, which I've been listening to at work, and that is very interesting. Uh, do you, do you want to just jump right into that? Yeah, I say let's just go for it. We don't have to go in chronological order; just any order you're ready to do this. Okay, let's. I'm going to screw up this woman's name horribly. Emma Emma Lilani Torini. What what is Emil- her name? Emiliana Torini. <laughs> okay, who is who, Icelandic and not yeah. Italian? No, and she's probably best known um, for she sang Gollum song in the Lord of the Rings tri- trilogy. Oh, so I think that's like her biggest, at least to U.S. fans. That's like what people know her for the most. Sure. Um, and the story with the songs of hers that I chose for you to listen to. There are cuts off of her album "Love in the Time of Science," "Love and Death in the Time of Science." I think I screwed that title up. Somebody out there will correct me. I'm sure. Close but, enough. Um, that came out in '99 or 2000, and the reason it's Tears for Fears related is because uh, Roland Orzabal, along with Alan Griffiths, who was his songwriting partner and producer in the '90s when Kurt Smith left. Uh, they produced this album and they wrote some of the songs, uh, specifically Wednesday's Child and Baby Blue. And it was sort of a reawakening period for Roland Orzabal. This is what jump-started him into cr- another creative flourish, and that's why he decided to go back to work. That's why he came out with Tomcat Screaming Outside. Arguably, it's probably why he decided to get back together with Kurt Smith and start up Tears for Fears again. Wow. Um, he was... 
pretty much semi-retired at this point. I mean, or at least at the very least, not interested in doing anything with music and just kind of hanging out and you know raising his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what exactly is is he doing on this album? Like he, he um, so producer. I mean, most of the instruments are okay. played by him. Background vocals and just sort of being the kind of the brains behind the operation uh, obviously outside of the actual artist herself mm-hmm. but, um yeah wednesday's child baby blue were written by him as well and you can <laughs> they're very orzabellian lyrics oh absolutely uh, baby blue yeah that's um, um, i'm actually i got that one queued up right now i'm gonna put that one on yeah definitely orzabellian i like that as a uh a word to describe something that's beautiful uh, adjective of the of the year. <laughs> I, I just think, like the line, like "keep my daughter in a jar." Like I just <laughs> that sounds like orzable poetry for sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it was weird because I was listening to this and I had to I had to give it probably like four or five listens before it really started to stick with me. But it almost seems like a, a Tears for Fears produced Bjork album. And I don't yep. even, and maybe it's just the Icelandic connection, but even, you know, her vocal style and and kind of the melding of just '90s alternative pop and Tears for Fears classic pop sensibilities, it makes for a really interesting combination. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, and you can't actually find the album itself on iTunes, but there is like this whole collection of like it's called rarities or something, which is really weird because I think the album was actually a pretty big hit for her in mainland Europe but uh, I think the album is really good it's worth seeking out um, especially if you're interested in kind of continuing that Tears for Fears lineage but on its own I think it still stands up it definitely has like 90s alternative rock stapled all over it mm-hmm. but alternative rock meaning more like Bjork or um, you know not like uh fuel or yeah. something like that or filter Portis head with a bit more pep in their step there you go <laughs> that's very good yeah and i i think this is a a good way to discuss you know some of these deeper cuts that we're going to talk about that uh kurt smith and Ro- roland orzable were involved with in the 90s because it's really this lost era of of tears for fears music mm-hmm. and you know it's crazy because I, I think we've talked about before too about uh, just how they've they've kind of acted as like pop chameleons throughout the years. Whether it's the you know the 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 dark kind of new wave stuff of the early album uh, through you know the big grandiose pop production in the late eighties, all the way into like two thousand four where they're doing Beatles esque pop music, and during the nineties. I, I think there was a period where Roland Orzabal specifically was probably fixated a lot on strange alternative European pop music and like trip hop. Yep. And absolutely. a lot of that comes through here, which is crazy. And I think you get that a little bit with the Kurt Smith solo stuff too, which we're, we're going to talk about that later. That's <laughs> another discussion. Uh, yeah, but uh, this, let's say it one more time for me. Emiliana Torini. Emiliana Torini. Yeah, there we go. That wasn't racist at all, Steve. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so she's she's great. She's This is one of the, the cool things, and that's why I love doing this podcast, is not only do I love Tears for Fears, but then you, you, you kind of drop all these other little nuggets here in my lap, and uh, I get to discover some songs that I really genuinely enjoy, 
if you are a Tears for Fears fan, if you like 90s alternative pop and trip hop, this is definitely something you should check out for sure. I would even recommend her 2008 album, which isn't has, doesn't have anything to do with Tears for Fears, but uh, me and Armini, it's actually very good too. Cool. A little bit different than this one. It's a bit peppier. Um, right. Not quite as uh, uh, ethereal. Ethereal, yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it. Um, okay, well, let's talk about something else on here that is kind of weird. Another, uh, This one's more of a 90s staple. Why the hell is Tori Amos on this playlist, Steve? I'm going I'm <laughs> to play some Tori Amos for the crowd right now. <laughs> it's a left-field choice, and um, the song on? that I particularly put on that list, um, Crucify, it's, a, it's one of her biggest hits in, from very early in her solo career, but I always thought that it kind of sounded a little bit like tears for fears at least as far as like production qualities and then i don't know how i never made the connection but i knew ian stanley had produced her first album Mm -hmm. i like how i was playing a lot of adams instead i screwed that up (laughs) sorry it's all right we'll get to that in a second (laughs) um and i felt like it was important to bring up just because i think that they've had a lot of influence on her I remember when I was in Australia, um, they had this thing called Much Music, and it was like a Friday night thing, and they'd have like guest DJs, and or VJs, I guess, and she was a guest VJ, and I remember she played Shout by Tears for Fears, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And I dug back into her catalog, and like I said, Ian Stanley produced this album, and it has a very distinct kind of like Tears for Fears sound to it, at least like early, mid-80s Tears for Fears, and... Mm-hmm. I think it just points out that Ian Stanley, also of Man Crap, is sort of like an unsung hero. A lot of times with Tears for Fears, especially their earlier successes, um, I think he was very heavily involved in their production and really taught them a lot of how to do things, how to be good musicians in the studio and how to make certain calls. And in some ways, maybe that was kind of like the death of them in the 80s, and they spent, you know, four years on Seeds of Love. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I know Ian Stanley was involved at one point with that record, and he just kind of threw his hands up in the air and left because it was just taking too damn long. But, yeah, which is understandable. <laughs> but yeah, I think a, a lot of that Tears for Fear sound um, needs to be attributed to him. I think he was very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Yeah, and you can still see that stamp on other artists that you maybe wouldn't even expect, like Dory Amos. Yeah, and you know, I have uh, I have a newfound appreciation for Ian Stanley after your your homework for me this week. I, I've always been kind of fascinated with, for lack of a better term, auteur production people. You know, like whenever you hear a song, you're like, oh yeah, that's this guy. So. You know, whether it's uh, Phil Spector or Flood or, you know, something like that. And Nigel Godrich. And then Ian Stanley, I'm going to have to add to that list because after this week, it's not just the Tears for Fears sound. Like, I'm starting to hear his influence in other things. And you're right. Like, once you listen to this Tori Amos song, it just clicks. Like, you can tell that he's involved (laughs) with this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um. All right. Yeah. Well. So you you made me kind of like a Tori Amos song. Congratulations. You've done better than ninety um, percent of the girls I talked to on AIM in the late nineties. So uh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> that's a very niche joke that only a few people will get. 
Let's talk about Oletta Adams, man. Can we talk about uh, her? Since yeah. I accidentally I played her important. song for like 30 seconds earlier. <laughs> 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 Who is Oletta Adams? I'm sure the Tears for Fears super fans already know, but but tell the uninitiated. Of course. I mean, she's one of the biggest stories of the Tears for Fears story. Uh, one of the biggest parts of that story. Um, when they were feeling the dregs of touring in 1985 wanting to maybe even call it quits they find her at this hotel lounge in kansas city and it inspires at least roland orzabal to write a new song and as they're recording seeds of love they're struggling to get a direction going and their former producer tells them to go back to kansas city and find her and it sort of has this tale of like these white british dudes saving this african-american woman from obscurity but um (laughs) and and it's not exactly true i think she really inspired them a lot and they wind up recording a few songs from with her for the seeds of love album one of those being bad man song and the other one being woman in chains which wound up being a fairly big hit for both tears for fears and especially for her and the success of that brought the record label to giving her a contract and they commissioned Roland Orzabal to produce her first album Circle mm. of One which came out between the Seeds of Love album and right before they went on tour for that album and they brought her along on tour she opened for them and so she's a very important part of their story and obviously she went on to have a successful career of her own um, sort of between sort of. R&B genre and digging a little bit into gospel as well. Yeah. Uh, here's my here's my first hot take of the night. I am not a big Oleta Adams fan. I have immense respect for her voice. I, I think it's incredible. I don't know if the Tears for Fears production and her vocal stylings really uh, mesh particularly well. It just doesn't work for me. I think it tends to kind of veer into the same territory that the Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith solo records were going in around this time where you, you, you get little tinges of, of adult contemporary vibes that just mm-hmm. they don't, they don't work with me. And I think it's more pronounced specifically with Kurt Smith and soul on board, which we will talk about soon enough, uh, where it just, it doesn't work at all for him. And it gets it gets very '90s adult contemporary, but with Aleta Adams, her voice is so incredible that it, it sort of masks some of that. But at the same time, I feel like the production kind of drags her down at times too. Yeah, I um, it was the song I had you sp- listen to, uh, "Rhythm of Life," which began its life as a Tears for Fear song. It was going to be one of the lead tracks on the Seeds of Love album before they decided they just couldn't do anything with it. And so they sort of gifted it to her as like her first single. Yeah. It's a very, again, Orzabellian lyrics, hardcore. Sure, sure. Um, And it's weird to hear it sung by this woman with this powerful, like, gospel R&B style vocal. Mm -hmm. But I do agree with you in that it does definitely venture into that adult contemporary mode. And it, but it's hard for me to, and probably for you as well, because we were both very young when this actually came out. Sure to contextualize like whether or not it sounds contemporary or just sounds adult contemporary. Yeah. Kind of like how like Steely Dan kind of gets blamed for a lot of like 
shitty Muzak that has come out in the wake of their success. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's fair. And uh, our, our youth is kind of working against us in this situation. And it, it does make me wonder if maybe if we were a little bit older, if we might contextualize this in a different way. Uh, but but that being said, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I would just, I would love to hear Olet Adams work with, God, like uh, Kamasi Washington or just just some avant-garde jazz R&B producer who would really, really push her into like yeah. Nina Simone territory. That's That's what I really want here. Right. And there's definitely like, commercial pressures on her and and on their part too um when they were producing the record for or at least when roland orsbull was producing that record mm-hmm. um yeah i'm i'm certainly not a big fan of it either although rhythm of life the more i listen to it it actually kind of grows on me yeah but i also know that i personally have a soft spot for 90s r&b that's fair and i, I think big luther fan big, oh man big luther fan i i think when People go back and listen to our episode on the Seeds of Love. I, I had some similar complaints uh, yeah. where I wasn't completely in love with the Olet Adams stuff. Uh, yeah, I just that's that's one hump that I, I can't really get over. And I think we might touch on that in some of the later episodes that we're going to do in season two here. But with that being said, why the fuck did you put a car song on this? Excuse my language. Why the golly gosh darn did you put a car song? <laughs> On this playlist, is well, is it even a Cars song? It's not even a Cars song. Technically, it's a Rick Ocasek song. Oh, but I know tomato. So you know, yeah. Rick Ocasek is the well. I mean, Benjamin Orr was the Cars too. R.I.P. Sure, come on. But, uh, um. So yeah, I put on uh, his one and only ch- solo charting hit uh, from his 1986 album. This side of paradise, uh, motion in motion. That's a fun rhyme. Yeah, this motion in motion lotion. It this feels like a like a new wave reimagining of a meatloaf song. <laughs> I would do anything, <laughs> but he won't do that. So don't even well, don't even ask him. Came out before that meatloaf song. Oh yeah, I guess it did because this was eighty six and that meatloaf song came out what ninety eighty nine. Ninety-two, ninety-three. Ninety-two, ninety-three. Okay, because that was "Bad Out of Hell 2. Right? "Bad Out of Hell 2. Even uh, more battier. Even and more battier. Is there a "Bad Out of Hell 3 yet? Yeah, there is actually. <laughs> I think it did come out just a few years ago. Okay. Well, I because I, I read some headline the other day. It's like Meatloaf is back in the studio with his producer. And I was like, wow, Meatloaf's alive. That's great. Uh, <laughs> yeah, wow. All right. Yeah, this song, boy. I, I'm a big Cars fan. I love Rick Ocasek. Again, another guy who I think he's super underrated as a producer. He's really agree, awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's also kind of a dick as a human. Like he he really enjoys suing the crap out of other musicians who he thinks uh, are stealing riffs from him. Car seat headrest. Yeah, car seat headrest. <laughs> Literally had to with the name Car in his surprising and sue him for that. The word yeah. Car is in your artist's name. Well, he sued him because the the guy from Car Seat Headrest wrote a song called "Just What I Needed," right? Yeah, it was a pretty legit, a pretty blatant ripoff, actually. Yeah, you know, <laughs> that that was fair. That was fair, but you know, he, he's a guy who's known for being litigious. But yet, this is—I uh, don't know, man. It's a magical potion. I, when when you told me that Roland Orzabal played guitar on this. 
like I, I'm I'm struggling to even hear the guitar. Hold, I'm gonna turn this up a little bit. It like comes in during the bridge, and even then, it's kind of buried in the mix a little bit. Yeah, this is all. Uh, yeah, a little bit there. What well, it's one of those situations too where the guitar is so heavily like effect laden and synthesized that it's it, it's tough to parse out what is guitar and what's keyboard really. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a shame really because it's um like I said for Rick Ocasek, that was his biggest hit ever. I think it's huh. his only charting single. Um and Roland Orsable does sing background in the chorus too, and you can kinda tell. But yeah, the guitar it's kinda like and I'm sure it probably doesn't matter to him. He got paid to do it, so fuck it, do whatever you want. Um <laughs> And the reason he got involved with the production in the first place is because the producers of Rick Ocasek's album were uh, Russ Collum and Chris Hughes, who produced The Hurting. And Chris Hughes was on board, too, for songs from The Big Chair. So oh, okay. it's kind of like Roland Norsbull's their buddy. Hey, come on, play guitar for the guy from The Cars. Yeah, all right. Sounds fun. <laughs> <laughs> another another rare one take from Roland Orzabal. Wow, <laughs> probably. I, I always wonder too. Like, is Roland Orzabal just hanging out in the studio and they're just knocking on doors? Like, hey man, you want to lay down some riffs here for this Cars guy song? <laughs> like, that's that possible too. Um, so this would have been around the time they probably started work on Seeds of Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, just tracking in the studio and Rick Ocasek's in there hanging out, wearing his sunglasses indoors. <laughs> I, I've never well, no, I've seen him without sunglasses. That's not true, yeah. but rarely, rarely. That's he's fair. like Bono. <laughs> I think I think Bono ripped off Rico Case. You know, I was going to go with Roy Orbison, but if you want to slap Bono oh, yeah, on him, geez, you jerk. So wow. goes Roy Orbison, Rico Kasich, Bono. Bono, Bono yeah, that, that the makes tree sense. of sunglasses. <laughs> Steve, what in the hell is the color field? Oh, that's really interesting. Here's a better question. Why in the hell is the color field? What is going on? What is this? You know, I haven't listened to a lot of color field either, but I'm very intrigued by them because it all goes back to the specials. Oh? Do tell. Color, color field is a Terry Hall project. Terry Hall being co-frontman of the specials. Huh. And... um after he did the specials, he and a few of the other guys from uh, from the specials formed Fun Boy 3, who wrote the original version of Our Lips Are Sealed. Oh. And then uh, once they broke up because they were getting too successful, uh, Terry Hall formed The Color Field, which was sort of like his him wanting to do more pop-oriented rock. Sure. Well, I and- think they were around for like two or three albums, too. Aside from involving the guy from the specials, they're clearly British because they spell color with a U. Uh, <laughs> I I have tried desperately to listen to this to try and, and, and pick out something that I really like. And the best thing that I can say about the color field is they sound like a caricature of 1980s pop music. Like if you, mm-hmm. if you were to like make a list of here are all the cliches which I associate with 1980s pop. And then you like fed that into a computer algorithm to create like a fake '80s new wave song. It would sound like the Color Field. I agree with that sentiment. Actually, <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm not. I'm not. Watch. We're gonna have some crazy Color Field fan or 
Johnny Colorfield, the bass player, is going to hop on the forums and yell at us. Well, it's a lot like kind of like when Paul Weller left the jam, like he did Style Council, and that was such a big jump from what he'd been doing before. He's not a sneering uh-huh. punk anymore. He's just like this lighthearted R&B pop guy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe Terry Hall was trying to go down that same road, although it wasn't as successful. I don't really care for it either. And I I love the specials, and I even like Fun Boy 3. I like some of their stuff. Um, but uh, the color field's kind of hard to wrap my head around. Um, and the reason I put those two songs on your list was because features more guitar playing from our man Orzable. Really? And again, yeah. another album where it's just like, wait, where's the guitar? And it's kind of buried in the mix here. Yeah, one of the songs, the car, the guitar doesn't even come, unless it's completely buried in the mix throughout the entire song, you don't hear it until there's like a guitar solo at the very end of the song. Yeah. And, and like the tag of the song, it fades out. Oh, and these are these are really long songs, too. They're, they're both like four, four and a half minutes long, and you're like, oh, where's, where's the guitar? Where did it go? <laughs> it's yep. just like, kept waiting for it. Yeah, it's it's weird that Roland Orzabal is involved with these guys. It's weird that this exists. Like I, I can't even. I was trying to think of like a contemporary comparison, and the only thing I can think of is like, what if Billy Joe Armstrong of Green Day announced that he had made a dubstep album? Like that's that's what this is to me. It's just like yeah, the guy from the Specials just made the most new wave thing you've ever heard in your entire life. Yeah, actually, I, I'd agree with that. <laughs> there was somebody else I was thinking of that I shouldn't even be talking about this because we're recording live here, and <laughs> I'm going to lose my train of thought. But there's somebody else I was thinking of who did like a really wild like side project thing, and it like totally threw me off. Maybe mm. it's Paul Banks from Interpol doing that stuff with uh, Giza. Oh yeah, there you go. That's another good example. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Colorfield, not digging it. Roland. Your talents are, they, they are immense. And heavily underutilized here. <laughs> and heavily underutilized. I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's like you have a pop song writing god who is a damn good guitar player and a great musician. Mm-hmm. And you're like, eh, forget it. I'm just going to, I'm going to do some, some new wave crooning and we'll just bury this guy. <laughs> and, and this is all speculation on my part, but it makes me wonder why. It's so hard to find any collaborative things Roland Orsbull's done outside of these two artists, Colorfield and Rick Ocasek. Hmm. And then he doesn't do anything else that I'm aware of until he produces Emiliana Torini's album. Oh, and Oletta Adams, too. But Sure. But that's it. And yeah, maybe, I don't know if he was disappointed with the results or if he just really doesn't give a shit. Maybe yeah. it's both, but yeah, yeah, I gotta wonder. I mean, especially during this period of time, he's probably a pretty busy guy, so I can't imagine he was just you know in mercenary mode trying to help people out. But it is mm. kind of interesting to think about. All right, well, you, do you you wanna you wanna move on here to uh, this? Might be my favorite song on the on the list, <laughs> just because it's so ridiculous. Well, which one is? Are we going into uh, Kurt Smith stuff here? Oh no, we're, no, no, I'm saving Big Kurt for the end. Okay, because <laughs> I have an interesting thing I need to bring up before we start on him, so make sure you remind me. I will definitely remind you. All right. Tell me all about Junkie XL. What am I listening to? Oh, well, this is Kurt Smith stuff, but... Uh, oh, it is? Okay. Yep. So Junkie XL, I think is he's a DJ from, from England, uh, best known for uh, remixing that Elvis song in the early 2000s, oh. A Little Less Conversation. That was him? Huh. That was him. 
That was Junkie XL. I think he's still fairly popular, probably at least in mainland Europe and that kind of thing. But huh. this is from his 2012 album, 2011 album. And uh, Kurt Smith is collaborating with him. And there's very few Kurt Smith collaborations out there as well. Yeah, uh, I was going to say that the closest he ever came to being a major collaborator was with the Jesus and Mary chain. Really? They brought him in to like play bass on their first album, and it just didn't work out. I, I can imagine that. A lot of things didn't work out with those guys. Have you seen early Jesus and Mary chain interviews? Yeah, like I'm surprised that he was even brought in at any point. There's um, there's this one, well, because, you know, the Reed brothers are notoriously kind of dicks, or at least they were. I'm sure they're fine people. But, like, they would just completely indulge themselves in this rock star lifestyle. And there's this incredible interview with the Jesus and Mary chain, and it's just the Reed brothers and Bobby Gillespie just sitting on this couch smoking cigarettes and the Reed brothers are completely ignoring the questions that are being asked by the interviewer. And then this woman just sits on Bobby Gillespie's lap and he just makes out with her for the entire duration <laughs> of this 10 minute interview. And it's the most awkward thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So Kurt Smith seems like, I don't know, more of a buttoned up every man. I, I don't know if he would really gel well with the creation records crowd. Yeah, it's it's puzzling. And there's very little information I know about it. It's just something I remember. In fact, there's a really great website. It's called memoriesfade.com uh, that's run or was run. It's up as an archive now by this major Tears for Fears fan. And he has this amazing website full of Tears for Fears archives. And there's this big FAQ section. And he talks about like how, yeah, like collaborations. Kurt Smith was going to play bass on Psycho Candy, and it just didn't work out. <laughs> he was like, wait a second, your drummer can't actually play the drums, and he just has a snare and a floor tom and stands up? And I'm, I'm sure that's a lot to do with it. I mean, Kurt Smith, too, I think is a great bass player, um, but he's definitely a, he's a very melodic bass player, which is not, I don't think, what they would have ever been looking for. No. And, so and why think... he even was brought in the first place is just, maybe they just need somebody sort of high profile to hype up the record, but... Yeah. Well, and with the Jesus and Mary Jane, obviously they grew into wonderful musicians and they oh, made yeah. some great stuff. But, I mean, they, they notoriously, they started off just by being just loud and brash and, God, like, when they first started playing together... Literally, none of them knew how to play out their instruments. They were like, "Yeah, we just we just had instruments, so we just started booking shows, and we figured things out." Which is crazy to think about. Like, can you imagine if you know you and I just picked up instruments that we weren't familiar with, booked a show, and just played until we got good enough, and then eventually started releasing like seminal rock albums? How is that even possible? <laughs> now I kind of want to give it a shot. I know, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, give me a sousaphone. We're gonna be rock stars, baby. <laughs> Maybe. I oh, I'll know. get the dulcimer. Yeah, dulcimer. Hey, no, that's already there's already a Tears for Fears dulcimer guy. You can't do that. <laughs> I was wondering when we we're gonna bring that up. It's on YouTube.com. That's that's actually why we brought the podcast up or back. You know, we're like season two. There's a dulcimer guy going viral on YouTube. It's all real now. <laughs> Godspeed. Oh Lord. All right, yeah, yeah, the Junkie XL thing, that was a big surprise. And I and I guess it kind of makes sense if only in the context of looking at what I mean, Tears for Fears hasn't been doing a ton lately, 
but if you look at their covers they've done, whether it's uh, Animal Collective or uh, Arcade Fire, mm-hmm. it, it has more of an electronic tinge to it as opposed to what they were doing in, say, 2004 with kind of that, you know, Beatles, Britpop thing. Yeah, and I think it's maybe a forbearing for whatever material they're going to come out with, which a year ago I was hoping we were going to have at least a new single by now, but we're not quite there yet, but I feel like something imminently is going to happen. Uh, The most recent announcement is that the new album is going to be ready in 2017, but uh, I don't know. We'll see. I wonder if it's going to sound like Basement Jacks. I'm, I might cry. <laughs> Come on, Steve. Where's your head at? <laughs> I was just going to say that. Damn it. <laughs> ha! Beat you to it. Steve. Yeah. What in the hell is this? This is uh, Michael Wainwright's Heart you know, Shaped Man. I was very confused when I saw this because when I think of Michael Wainwright, I think of like high end home goods. Here to find out, he writes he writes songs that I don't particularly care for. What is the Tears for Fears connection here? I don't know anything about that. About Mike's home goods? Yeah, go Google Google. Yeah, I can't even say the word Google. Google Michael Wainwright, and I guarantee the first thing you will see are like plate collections that cost like six hundred dollars. It's not a joke. Really? Yeah. Do it Sorry, right now. faithful listeners. I really do need to look this up right now because I'm having my mind blown live on a podcast. That's right. That's what I do. It's one of the things that I offer. One of my services. <laughs> well, what? Why yeah. am I looking this up? Um, yeah, look at that. It's porcelain dinner bowls for $535. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dinnerware. Yeah, that's the first thing that pops see? up. See? I told you. And I'm like, what? what is going on? Do you need a? Uh, do you or Amanda need a tabula tua? By the way, oh tabula what? <laughs> a Teruro platinum double gold glass. Uh, that's ex- that's exactly what I need. Uh, I actually I'd like this Michael Wainwright platinum decanter. I think uh, you know that that would really help out my dinner parties. It is a nice decanter. Who the fuck is spending five hundred dollars on a set of plates? Like how how rich are you? I mean, you're literally like slopping food on that. What? <laughs> Well, now I'm wondering, like, if Tears for Fears came across Michael Wainwright when they were, like, looking up dinnerware and thought, oh, there's a musician (laughs) named Michael Wainwright, too? Weird. Interesting. Tell me more. (laughs) So, the Michael Wainwright we're supposed to be talking about is a uh, Canadian musician, singer-songwriter, and he, in the mid to late 2000s, was actually touring with Tears for Fears. He... Handled the vocal duties on Woman in Chains. Actually did a really standout job. Um, oh. I think a lot of people maybe played it off as a joke. Like, ha, huh, he's a man singing a lady song. It's the parts. man in chains. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. But he does really well. I mean, he has the voice for it. He's, 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 he's very good. Um, and the song I sent you, Heart Shaped Man, is actually a song that was written for him by Roland Dorzable on one of their tours together. And Roland Doorsable actually sings backing vocals on it. He might even play an instrument or two on there, but I'm not sure. But I know he at least sings backing vocals. And like I said, it was written by him because apparently they are on tour. He'd always make fun of Michael Wainwright because he's kind of like this bald-headed guy with like a very wide head and like a low angular jaw. Mm-hmm. So he was called the heart-shaped looking man. 
<laughs> That's kind of mean. Yeah. So basically, Roland Orsbull bullied a guy until he wrote a song. Well, he didn't really bully him, but like, <laughs> kind of have jokingly bullied this guy and then said, oh, I wrote a song about you. And it turned out to actually, I think it's actually, I mean, it sounds like an Everybody Loves a Happy Ending cast off, which yeah. I don't mean to make that sound like a bad thing. It's a very poppy, sort of like that Beatlesque Brit pop type of song. Sure. I, I mean, uh, when I heard it, my instant thought was, you know how sometimes you listen to an album and after the last song ends on the album, like there's just like a 10 minute break of silence and all of a sudden like another song just kind of starts up? Yeah, the hidden track. The hidden track. This sounds like if there was a hidden track on Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, it might be Heart Shaped Man in a different form. <laughs> It's very possible, actually. If if we if we can have a little bit of real talk here, though, have you seen the album cover to Michael Wainwright's "The Circus Is Coming to Town"? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> it's, uh, I definitely have. Oh boy, it's uh, it's very like Heath Ledger Joker esque. Well, so when I I went to go see Tears for Fears in 2011 with uh, some very close friends of mine. Their names are Alan Kayla. Just for anybody who needs to know that information. Oh man, you want to pick up those and names you just dropped? The <laughs> Alan Kayla, come on. Well, they might be listening. Who knows? But uh, I'm at the concert with him. Michael Wainwright is opening, and he's promote. He just released this album, so he's promoting that record. And during one of his songs, he takes his guitar off and he turns to the stool and he starts putting on clown makeup. And my friend Kayla, who's terrified of clowns, is like, oh, fuck. I don't know if I can handle this, guys. I might need to run out. <laughs> and he turns around and he has this terrifying clown makeup on. And I'm sure it's related to the song. It's related to the album. But it was just – it was weird because he's just like a guy with an acoustic guitar. And then he has this very dramatic um, stage performance. Jesus. Um, like a la like – you know – it's like Peter Gabriel Jace. Um, not knocking the guy. Like it yeah. was actually very interesting, but it was also very like unexpected and kind of like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. Jeez. So yeah, the, the Heath Ledger Joker thing makes sense for the album cover because that was the theme. The circus is coming back to town, baby. It is featuring creepy Michael Wainwright, who isn't a plate. He's a man who sings songs. <laughs> I also did a shot with Michael Wainwright in Las Vegas once. Oh, that's not bad. After a Tears for Fear show, my brother and I went up to him and we're like, hey, man, that was really good. You want a shot? <laughs> He's like, yeah, sure. And Rick, my brother, buys him a shot of Jack Daniels. Him and uh, Doug Petty, the keyboard player. Wow. So, yeah. That's not Boozed bad. up with those guys for about a minute or two and then walked away because we were probably freaking them out. So Yeah, a little bit. I can imagine that. Two young cats going up to Michael Wainwright getting all excited. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you, I do remember him telling me though. <laughs> uh, hopefully, I'm not gonna like get him in trouble for this, but it just we were asking because he had just been touring them for the first time. We're like, "Oh, you enjoying the shows? Like, it's going well for you? You're getting a lot of exposure?" He's like, "Yeah, but the best part, man, is that like I get laid every night." <laughs> <laughs> it's that it clown was- makeup. <laughs> <laughs> And and to be fair, I mean, he wasn't being like a jerk about it. He wasn't like boasting about it. He, I think, he just seemed like really surprised. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm actually meeting because he's a little bit younger. He's like, I'm actually meeting people my age, and I'm being very, you know, sex positive on this tour. It's great. Good for him. Good, yeah, good, <laughs> good, good for, for him. you, Michael Wayne. Right? 
Nothing Ooh. wrong. As long as everybody's consenting and happy, it's all good. That's good. Man, I'm jealous you get to take shots with him. <laughs> well, I don't know. My uh, my goal in life is actually to see Sammy Hagar at a bar and then yell Mas Tequila, but actually just smash the tequila bottle over his head. <laughs> Maybe one day. And make him swallow the mezcal worm? Yeah, exactly. Hey, let's talk about an actual Tears for Fear song. How's that sound? <laughs> Sorry for that deviation, folks. What do we got here? So we talked a little bit about the Tears for Fear's B-side album, did we not? Yes. Uh, Saturday Night Marshall and Lunatic, um, yeah. which that album's actually become somewhat irrelevant since they've done so many uh, reissues. Yeah, it's kind of weird because I, I, I feel like on all the reissues, they, they include all the B-sides, which are then remastered, so they're actually maybe better versions of the songs that are on this album. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, definitely. The only thing I'll say about Saturday Night Marshall and Lunatic, the B-sides collection, it's worth picking up just to read the liner notes. Because it's just Roland Orzabal basically shitting on all the tracks. It's wow. like, yep, this wasn't good enough to make an album, but, you know, we'll put it on this uh, B-side anyway. It's just, it's really interesting. He has, like, very self-deprecating humor about all the tracks, and it's pretty <laughs> cool. But this one, Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams, this version specifically is remixed by a UK dance group called Fluke. Mm-hmm. They collaborated with Roland Orzabal. This would have been right around the time Tears for Fears officially split, and they released the song Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams under the artist name, Johnny Panic and the Bible of Dreams, oh. and it wound up becoming like a really big dance club hit for them. Like Not like a top 40 pop hit, but like was a really big hit in all the clubs, you know, New York, Miami, wherever, Schenectady, Billings. <laughs> I don't know, Billings has some dance clubs, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's got this good rap here. Yeah, where they're just rapping. And I remember him talking about when he wrote Roland Rosebow, when he wrote the lyrics to Sowing the Seeds of Love, he wanted to hear those lyrics rapped. And that was the only reason he did that for this song. Oh, I think, oh man, I'm having trouble with the the Tears for Fears and the the 90s hip-hop fusion here. This song is is kind of a cool choice, and I'm I'm glad that you you put this on my homework list here, because I think it does a really good job of sort of bridging the gap and and, and filling in the spaces of where Tears for Fears might have gone and where they did go as solo artists. So mm-hmm. when I hear this, I've talked before about how you, you kind of hear this Brit pop influence in in later Tears for Fears. And uh, you know, a lot of '90s like alternative rock, but this is them just like full on embracing British trip hop and club music, which I think if they wouldn't have split, if they would have stuck together, if Raúl and the Kings of Spain and Elemental weren't things, I-, I really believe this is the direction they probably would have headed in. Something similar yeah. to this, and instead. We got Kurt Smith's solo record. <laughs> so long. <laughs> I can't even stifle my laughter. Which, again, it, it, it dances around with this, this like, I don't know, playfully including rap where it maybe doesn't belong. <sighs> and I don't think there's anything worse in my mind. And, and Kurt Smith would probably stand by me with this one. Yeah. Because I don't believe he likes Soul on Board much himself. This is the kind of album where you just... you. you cringe because it's just 
this mashup of styles that do not belong together at all. And I just, I can we? I got to play the beginning of this. <laughs> we're coming. We're coming to Kurt Smith's revolution. Tell the government that freedom is God sent. Oh boy. This is just like that fretless bass just kind of farting in there. Yeah, it's just like a farting fretless bass and this weird mashup of Oh god, I don't even know, like throwaway Peter Gabriel guitar mixed with like musical imperialism that's just like grabbing at world music. And also there's there's a little touch of walk the dinosaur in here if you ask me. <laughs> I really do not like Soul on Board. I, I, I might have said it on the last episode, and I'll say it again. I am not on board with Soul on Board. Everything <laughs> from the ridiculous album cover, which has, like, I am an edgy grunge artist, the font. And then the album itself, it's this weird, like, washed-up portrait of Kurt Smith, of him, like, looking off into the distance. But it's weird because all the the colors sort of blend together, and he just looks like a conehead to me. I, I just I can't <laughs> I can't deal with Soul on Board. Yeah, I don't think anybody really can. And if there is a big fan of Soul on Board, I I don't know if I understand you that well. Yeah, um, I can see where like some of the pop. I mean, he has like a big production team on this record, mm-hmm. like guys who were making big pop hits, but it's just like very watered down pop hits. So there's like, it's constructed in a way to be very accessible. It's constructed in a way to make you think like, oh, this is just good rock and pop stuff. But if you have like, if you even want to take more than two seconds to really think about what you're consuming, you, you're gonna lose your mind. You're gonna just see through all the bullshit. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just even coming from Kurt Smith's angle, like, I often thought to myself, like, why did he even bother doing this? And you know, you read interviews with him even up until his day. He owed Mercury Records one more album. Because he was, even though he was signed as Tears for Fears, he still was under contract under his own name. So he had to give him at least one more record. Mm-hmm. And at this point, 92, 93, he's done with the music business. That's why he left Tears for Fears. He's because he's just done. But then he had to record this album. Jesus. <laughs> with a lot of people doing heavy lifting. Uh, the guys from Go West, apparently, which you may remember from that song from Pretty Woman. Ooh. The King of Wishful Thinking. <laughs> uh, meat and Potatoes, uh, Adult Contemporary. Um, so it's just... Oh, and the guy who wrote In the Song of Stone and Light. Hmm. Martin Page. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm deviating a little bit here, but... I can't imagine like how torturous of a process this must have been for him. And it's easy to think like, well, he's a celebrity, he's a pop star, like how hard can it be? But that he had to go through not only like recording this piece of shit, but promoting it. And he only had yeah. to promote it like in the UK and Europe because the US label was like, No, this is crap, we're not gonna put this out. Mm-hmm. Um and then after this he left the music industry for like four or five years. Mm-hmm completely disappeared did exactly what he set out to do and it's just i don't it's it, that makes the album more interesting mm-hmm. but it doesn't make it better at all it's yeah. it's laughable it's laughably bad yeah it, it's more of a, a great example of 
just bad uh, like old guard record industry politics and and what that can do to influence an artist to create something that maybe they're not very comfortable with. But yeah, like God, it, it's just one of those records where you listen to it and there's so much going on, but there's nothing going on that I'm particularly interested in. And there's a few like I, I think the uh, the lead single it might even be the first track on the album. It's okay. It's mm. like, it's fine. It's like, oh, this is a Tears for Fears song that I'd, I'd rank as like a fourth tier uh, Tears for Fears song. And it's All just right. like, man, but there's some tracks on here where it's just uh, cringeworthy stuff. I, I, can't, I can't deal with it. It's the worst kind of pop music where you can tell that his heart is not in it. And that's something, too, because people always talk about songs where it's like, oh, my God, it's so emotional. Like, you can just, you can feel the raw emotion here. And... Soul on Board is almost the exact opposite where it feels so cold and hollow and it's sort of sad because you know mm-hmm. there the, the you know there's a great guy behind all of this and this is what we have and it's just oh god I don't want to talk about it. Uh I I listen to Kurt Smith's other solo stuff though. Yeah, and that and that's all him. Like yeah. that's he's a hundred percent invested in all of that. And that's totally fine. Like I'm I am I'm going to stand here and I'm going to tell you that I am not in love with deceptively heavy, but I'm, I'm not either. I'll say that too. That being said, even though I'm not in love with deceptively heavy, uh, it's, it's respectable and it's fine. And I listened to it for most of the week at work and I wasn't like appalled by it. Whereas soul on board, like there were, there are times where I literally had to mute songs on soul on board just so i could get something done and stop scowling <laughs> mm-hmm. and deceptively heavy is it, it's a fine record it's it's not the type of thing where i'm gonna you know shout from the hills that people should listen to it but i think if you are a big fan of kurt smith's input in tears for fears there's probably something for you on deceptively heavy yeah, and it's uh, all those albums are definitely uh, his, his proper solo albums. Like anything post Soul on Board, you definitely get more of a peek behind the curtain on who he is as a person. Um, it, the the song writing and even the style production is really really intimate. Um, in fact, it's almost uncomfortable sometimes. It's like he's just like whispering right into your ear. Yeah, oh, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Uh, b- before we wrap things up here and I, I know we talked about Kersmith's solo stuff before so you know I don't, I don't want to spend too much time necessarily uh, talking about that again if you are interested in more of our opinions on Tears for Fears B-Sides and Solo where you can go back and listen to the episode uh, that precedes this one and I think we talk about that a little bit more uh, I, I do want to talk about really quickly if you don't mind why exactly was Kurt Smith recording Christmas songs what 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 is going on here? I think that was just um, something special for the fans. Like, I want to say he probably recorded his first Christmas song maybe five years ago. Okay. Uh, he originally did it for the show Psych, um, oh, and they weird. featured like his like first Christmas song on Psych called "This Is Christmas." And then he did another one that actually turned up on um, Deceptively Heavy called. Um, Oh God! Why am I like drawing a complete blank right now? For heaven's sake, mm-hmm. um, which is not quite as Christmassy as like his other Christmas songs, but it's um, it's actually really good. I think it's the best track on that specific album. Mm. And then um, 
Yeah, I think he just did a few covers just for people to listen to, just for fans only. Uh, then having like his daughters sing a few Christmas songs too. I think we're just okay. sort of like a just a special treat. I think there's a definitely like for Tears of Fusion in general, there's a complete lack of Christmas songs unless you want to listen to uh, Do They Know It's Christmas and you can hear a sample from The Hurting. <laughs> but they weren't even invited to sing on that, which is Ooh. just mind-boggling. That's the real hurting there. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's I don't know, it's weird because if I were to make a list of bands that I don't think would ever record a Christmas song, I think Tears for Fears and the people involved in Tears for Fears would be very high on that list. Mm. And it's especially odd to just not only hear the fact that he has multiple Christmas songs, but that his daughters are singing on it. Which, by the way, just a brief aside, if I have a daughter ever and I'm recording her singing a Christmas song, I'm going to personally request that she doesn't sing Santa Baby. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, all I'm saying is I don't want my daughter to be singing a song about seducing a mythological old man. Not my thing. <laughs> it was slightly problematic. Slightly a little bit. But hey, uh, they're the pretty good Christmas songs. Like yeah, if, yeah. If, if I was uh, sitting around with my parents on Christmas drinking eggnog and trying to not deal with the fact that they're super annoying, sorry, mom and dad, uh, I'd probably put this on. I really like his cover of um, the song Lonely This Christmas, which is a really popular British Christmas song by this uh, glam rock band called Mud. Um, if you got time after this, you should just look up the music video, by the way. Mud, Lonely This mind. Christmas. Uh, Kurt Smith covers that on his uh, SoundCloud website. It's pretty no, good. No relation to My Name is Mud? No relation to My Name is Mud. Okay, that's good. That's a good start. I'll Mud's like, like if Elvis Presley did glam rock, that's Mud. <laughs> that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> it's actually. pretty cool, actually. You should check it out. I can get behind that. All right, Steve. we got to wrap things up. We're going a little bit over our time, but... Before we go, we have something very, very important that we need to tell our listeners about. We have a hashtag campaign that we need to get off the ground. This is important. If you are a Tears for Fears fan, if you know a Tears for Fears fan, if you think you met one one time, listen very carefully. Steve, please tell the people what we're trying to do. All right. So we're going to see Tears for Fears in Grand Rapids, September 26th. And while we're always very happy, I know they're going to have a great performance I would like to personally see maybe just a little deviation in their usual set list, and we would love to hear Mother's Talk. Maybe in the place of one of their covers, not to be a picky bastard about it, and not to say that they're doing a terrible job, but it would just be so cool to hear Mother's Talk, or maybe even a different earlier period song, it doesn't matter, but we're trying to get Tears for Fears to play Mother's Talk in when, Grand when Rapids. When was the last time they played Mother's Talk live? I have no idea. I think they played it a few times, maybe back in 2005. And even then, it was probably at like one or two shows. Um, maybe if uh, maybe if Bruno is listening to this, he can tell us. Maybe. Um, since he was around at that point. Um, but yeah, we... Um, we would. I think that would be a real treat to hear. I think it's accessible enough, and to like a lot of novice people, who maybe didn't even realize Tears for Fears of Touring, who are stumbling into this Grand Rapids concert, are going to be like, "Oh yeah, I know that one from Songs from the Big Chair." Yeah. So yeah, hey, it's got a lot of appeal. If you're listening right now, hop on Twitter, hop on Facebook, but mostly hop on Twitter because hashtags just work better there. Tell 
Tears for Fears. You tweet at them. You say, hey, guys, we love you. We'll be in Grand Rapids. We want Mother's Talk. Hashtag Mother's Talk GR. Make it happen. Hashtag Mother's Talk GR. We're going to get this thing off the ground. It's going to happen. We're going to let them know. At the very least, they will be British and go, hmm, that's nice, and then just not play it. But you know what? Maybe it'll work. I have faith. I want to hear that song. I love Mother's Talk. Come on. Who doesn't love Mother's Talk? Let's make it happen. All and right, if Steve. you're tweeting at them, it's at Roland TFF or at Tears for Fears or at Kurt Smith. Mm-hmm. I would recommend tweeting in all three. Hashtag Mother's Talk GR. Let them know. Steve, speaking of Twitter, where can the Tears for Fears fan universe find you on Twitter? You can find me at Colmania. That is at K-O-H-L-M-A-N-I-A. Fabulous. And you can find me, Steve Cuff, at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. Add me on Twitter. I'll be your pal. Uh, With that being said, we are going to be back again next week. We're going to have another brand new episode for you. Uh, Steve, what are we talking about next week? I think next week we're going to be talking about Tears for Fears on film. We're going to look at a few concerts that they've released commercially, documentaries, and maybe talk about a few music videos. Sounds good to me. I'm looking forward to it. All right, Steve, thank you again for taking me on this wonderful Tears for Fears journey, and uh, we will be back next week. (laughs) 